in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Two brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, John Flack and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We are here to watch some movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest. I'm joined today by two fantastic guests. Unfortunately, my uh, co-host, uh, John Flack, cannot join us today. But with me is my good friend, Benjamin Johnson. Hello. And uh, my good friend, uh, Nathan Lutz. Hey, it's great to be here. And I found both of these guys at work. He didn't have to look too hard. Three architects talking about movies. Interesting perspective. That's right. A lot of building talk. Not, that, not really that much building talk, really. I mean, the, the sets of this are fascinating and the way they create the effects. So I, I think there's a lot to talk Emotional about Emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to know the guest here just a little bit before we get going. Um, let's uh, start with you, Nathan. Uh, what is your favorite robot character from a movie? Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm supporting this particular movie too much, I do got to say it's got to be Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just... It's, it's the most interesting take on what computers will become and what it means in the intervening phase between them becoming sentient and just being computers that we use. Wow. Hal's kind of an insecure jerk. I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> he, He's very insecure. Uh, I didn't say he was the guy I'd choose to have around. I, yeah, I'm just saying. I wouldn't want to go on a date with him. Yeah. He seems like he'd stick you with the check or something. Yeah. And always be worried about, like, are you, like, are you seeing somebody else? No. Yeah. Very insecure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If he'd just done his job and been perfect, it would have been okay. Right? Why can't he be perfect? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do demand that from robots. Yeah. I mean, what are they, they for? Have a, they have a single jaws. Ben, what about you? What's your favorite robot from a movie? Um, I have many because I'm a huge geek. So, I mean, this question could span my entire life. But most recently, the robot from the new Blade Runner that is his girlfriend, mm -hmm. I think... She's a hologram, so I'm expanding the question. Okay, yeah, is that okay? Yeah. Um, she's a hologram, and I think the way that technology is evolving, like sometimes you see movies and you see things in movies that eventually become modern day products, and I think that this is like an evolutionary jump. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, yeah. exactly. And I think it's just amazing. Well, if it makes any, uh, if it helps you feel any better about your pick, I would rather spend time with your pick. Than yeah, pick. because she's cool. Yeah, she's she very would supportive. be into me. Yeah, like I feel. And and Hal would be like, I'm probably I'm, I'm trying to kill That's, you because yeah. honestly, yeah, yeah. I so, mean, you would not want Hal as your uh, your uh, boyfriend girlfriend in this in this scenario. <laughs> no, but uh, but they're both interesting in in terms of how they are like you can see technology heading in both directions right now oh, yeah, and they both raise questions about what that means for us 
So Nathan is also a accomplished orchestra musician who plays the French horn. So this question is particularly tailored for him, but I'll ask it of you later, Ben. Uh, what is your favorite movie soundtrack? Yeah, so it's got to be the Empire Strikes Back soundtrack because, you know, it's got everything. It's got that wonderful, just foreboding Hoth soundtrack bit and then the asteroid field and, of course, the Imperial March. And it's just got everything. And, man, the French horn parts in those pieces are fantastic. Wouldn't it be sad if, like, the best soundtrack was assigned to a terrible movie? Like, what if, like, Troll 2, like, was had, <laughs> which had no redeeming qualities, <laughs> but it had an amazing soundtrack? Wouldn't that be frustrating? Well, it's really interesting because there are movies that are, you know, bad movies that have, or not necessarily bad movies, but... Movies which don't seem to deserve what they've got. So, for example, Steven Spielberg directed a film that it wasn't quite as amazing as it could have been called 1941. And it's got a really cool soundtrack going on and a march that I just absolutely love going on. It's just really fun to listen to. But man, that march is trapped in a movie that really does not deserve it. Hmm, interesting. Uh, ben, what, what, what's your... Uh, go-to movie soundtrack <sighs> that's another tough one can I expand that question perhaps to television shows I, I'll, oh. I'll allow it this time okay. I'm curious um, again because I'm a huge science fiction nerd and it would take a lifetime to like go through all the uh, all the best uh, soundtracks I feel but something that I've just recently watched is The Expanse and I feel they have uh, this just monumental kind of soundtrack that totally goes agreed. that goes I know that totally you're agreed. that Nathan here is an Expanse fan but they have this just monumental like crescendo that builds whenever there's an event that's happening and the uh, I just think the the orchestra that accompanies it, the special effects and everything just works so well for that show. I don't, I don't know. I'm a huge fan of that show, so I would say that show in general. It's, it's just always wonderful to hear a soundtrack that is used as a way to describe and, you know, just really... It's not just that it's some leitmotif that, in, that is with some character or something. It's like when these big moments in the show happen, yeah. the theme plays, and it's always different depending on how the moment is. It might be very wistful because, you know, it's this exciting, maybe something will happen in the future, but it also might be very foreboding. But mm -hmm. it's always the same theme, and you know that through everything, it's this single contiguous story. So one last one is, uh, Nathan, if you could turn a book into a movie, which one would it be? So I am a really big Neil Stevenson fan, and I cannot understand why there are not any Neil Stevenson books made into movies. So can we please have a Snow Crash movie? Because that book, if you turned it into this breakneck pace, cyberpunk, just like crazy experience, it would be amazing. Interesting. So Ben, you're a movie producer. What book are you going to make into a movie? Again, I'd like to alter the question, if I may. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. He's, he's a man with no rules. I, I would like to propose a sequel to okay. a movie, uh, Ender's Game, mm -hmm. by uh, Scott Card. Okay. Um, okay. The first movie 
was based on the first book in the series. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the series of the books kind of take a totally different turn. Uh, they go literally centuries and millennia. Take oh, really? the human race. I've only read the first book. Yeah. Most people only read the first book. The The rest of the series is amazing. And I would love... We have the technology now. We can build it. Okay. <laughs> we, can build, we can build that man. And uh, I would love to see the rest of the series kind of flushed out. Is, is it too late or do you have to have Aja Butterfield be the same age? No, he grows up in the rest of the series. It's interesting because it's it's a movie where the reason for the time jump is not that they're just waiting a bunch of years for stuff to happen. It's that they don't have technology to bring them to other star systems immediately. So whenever they want to go traveling or something, the time to get there actually is taken, and that's why people yeah. would be so much older. It's so, so It's such an interesting concept because kind of like we were talking about The Expanse where... The concept is gravity. With Ender's Game, it's all about time and relativity, I yeah. feel. Yeah. So, what's the last movie you saw, Nathan? So, I have just seen Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, The Crimes of Grindelwald. And I gotta say, the critics, they've, they've got points, but I really enjoyed it. Our guest last think, week said the same thing. I, I, I think it just, it merits... And I'm gonna definitely going to see it a couple more times, probably, because it really merits trying to figure out what is going on in these very convoluted but really interesting plot lines. What about you, Ben? What's the last movie you saw? The last movie I saw was a movie called Europa Report. It's about an expedition to one of the, the moons of... I think it's Jupiter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Europa. Uh and it's an amazing movie. It's like really low budget. I mean, it's really high quality sci-fi, hardcore sci-fi. The storyline is really in like compelling. It's interesting and it's like very prevalent to what's going on today in science and technology. Hmm. Sounds interesting. I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen that one. Is it a recent movie? Uh I believe 2013. Okay. Yeah, so pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into today's movie, which is the 1968 movie of 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's a Stanley Kubrick milestone in film. It grossed $56.7 million, uh, placing it at number one in the box office in 1968. Uh, these numbers are uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, and I'm not 100% sure that those aren't re-releases and additional numbers that fueled it further because... Uh, I have read that it didn't necessarily do that well at first, but it, it had um, young people who like to come in and enjoy the last act of the movie where there's a lot of psycho uh, psychedelic effects and enjoy an acid trip. Wow. And so it was heavily fueled by people who wanted to take the ride there. I mean, they so, even changed the branding. It's the ultimate trip. Right. So if you want to make a movie now and you want to uh, help market it, uh, make it friendly for an acid trip. And even if your movie's not doing that well, it'll get a second wind from having a lot of pretty <laughs> colors in it. So, Amazing. Uh, placing behind it was the movie Funny Girl. Uh, and IMDb gives us an 8.3. And the Rotten Tomatoes critics give this a 93%. So that's very high. And an audience score of 89%. The Academy Awards uh, gave this Best Special Effects, and it was also nominated for 
um, original best original screenplay and best uh, production and design. Nathan, have you seen 2001 A Space Odyssey before? If so, what were your expectations coming in? Yeah, so I saw this around my second year in college and uh, I am surprised looking back on it that I waited that long to see it because I'm such a big fan of Star Trek and other science fiction elements and man they all owe so much to this movie so when I finally got to see it and also that I'm this classical musician who the music that's used in this film is just so special to it's it was just something I uh, should have done a lot earlier but yeah you can kind of see a direct correlation between this movie and the first Star Trek movie I believe oh I think it's just like oh they're almost parallel I think that movie owes a lot to this movie, yeah, and it too, definitely. even though it doesn't do the same exact thing with the with the soundtrack, it has a really good soundtrack on its own. So mm-hmm. I think that this movie not only inspired a certain tone of like how people did the visuals in science fiction storytelling, but also really inspired better scores. Ben, had you seen this movie before? If so, what was your first time? What were your expectations coming in? I had seen this movie before. I remember the first time I saw this movie when I was probably eight years old, maybe six or eight years old. And I remember I saw it in the movie rental store. This is back in the day when you rented movies Mm -hmm. uh, for VHS. And uh, I bugged my dad to rent this movie and he rented it, and I remember we put it in, and we watched it for the first 30 seconds, <laughs> and my dad started fast-forwarding it, and fast-forwarding it, and fast-forwarding it, oh, and no. I just got madder and madder, and I wanted him to stop, but uh, I think we eventually ended like not watching the movie, and just... So pretty much you skipped to where there was yeah. stopping. <laughs> we we skip to, to the, yeah it's hard to because find it's movie. it's it's difficult to find in the movie because it's more of a an so your dad likes the talkies yeah <laughs> okay you could say that my dad is a, a classical man <laughs> <laughs> um, so I did not see this movie until junior high no it was high school it was high school I, was, <clears throat> I remember it was between uh, uh, ninth and tenth grade I got assigned. Uh, the book over summer to read it uh, for required reading. So you read Um, the book first. I actually did read the book first and it didn't make much sense to me. And um, it's very abstract. Yeah. And so seeing Kubrick's imagery, which isn't super defined and concrete (laughs) either, did actually help me out a good bit. Um, I honestly wish I had seen the movie first in this case. So yeah, mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah. and Unusual so thing. I watched it again in college with my wife uh, Mary and um, girlfriend at the time, and then uh, I'd seen it even once since then. So I've, this is this is probably watch four for me, and so yeah. I knew very well what I was getting in for, um, but I was excited to slow down and take it in at a deeper level. So cool. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where we have to warn everybody, we're going to talk in depth about 2001 A Space Odyssey and we're going to spoil it. So if you haven't seen it, we highly suggest that you pause this, go watch the movie, come back two and a half hours later, and uh, listen to the rest of this podcast. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. Uh, we got a celebrity endorsement. That's pretty exciting. So uh, 
here goes. Christopher Walken here to tell you about my favorite podcast, The Retro Movie Roundtable. It's a fun listen if you like movies. I myself have been in movies like Deer Hunter, Dead Zone, and Catch Me If You Can. Uh, if you like this podcast like I do, go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Wherever you get your podcast, give them a five-star review and comments on the show. I even gave them a like on Facebook and wrote to John and Russell at Retro Movie Round Table at Yahoo.com. One of the great joys of my career was hearing the Retro Movie Roundtable talk about my movies. Oh man, you're gonna love these guys. Wow. Wow, Christopher Walken, huh? That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know everybody, Russell. Yeah, I can't get any of these people to actually be on the show, but, um, <laughs> but they're very enthusiastic about supporting the show, so I'm, I'm always happy to have all this celebrity endorsement. Uh, you know, whether it be Donald Trump or Barack Obama or uh, Christopher Walken now, so uh, it's, it's amazing. We're it really is. catching on. It is. We're in 10 episodes now. It's yeah, 10, wow. 10. It's a milestone. Right it is there. a milestone. Feels like it. You're all grown up. As mentioned before, we're about to spoil this movie. Uh, Nathan, do you want to give us a plot summary? Yes, I would be happy to. So, 2001 A Space Odyssey depicts four encounters between humanity and a series of mysterious alien monoliths spaced across eons of history. It is a story of how their apparently miraculous appearances inspire us, or maybe influence us, to take leaps into the unknown. We begin with the iconic sound of Also Sprach Zarathustra, playing over the image of the earth and sun rising together above the moon. This brings us to scenes of apes fighting over water holes until a monolith appears, and we don't see how it gets there, but something about the experience drives them to experiment just a little with the world around them. One of them hefts the bone of a pig, and we get the Alzersbrock Zarathustra fanfare again, and we know that this is the dawn of man, the first tool, the first weapon, the first step beyond nature toward the monoliths. We skip forward to the not-too-distant future, the one that always seems to be about 30 years away and has been since the 60s, but we're getting there. Humanity has now reached balance with its technology where everything we want is like clockwork, within an easy reach. We meet the American doctor Haywood Floyd. He's taking a shuttle flight to the moon. He meets first on a spinning space station some acquaintances whose multinational camaraderie implies that nations on Earth now exist peacefully together. For the second time, we see space travel depicted like idealized, commercialized air travel. Once Floyd reaches the moon, he gives a speech to some personnel, thanking them for their cooperation in maintaining secrecy, and proceeds via another shuttle to the site of the second encounter. This time, we know that the monolith has not just appeared, but has been waiting to be unearthed for millions of years. Around it, the suited astronauts, moonwalkers, walk around in amazement, their reaction not so different from their distant ancestors. But there's a difference now. Into the chaos comes a piercing tone, because humans have the tools to hear it, a transmission from the monolith itself of unknown purpose towards Jupiter. Is a signal to alert the race which created the monoliths, or a breadcrumb trail for us to follow? 
Whatever the case, in the following months, America builds and crews a spaceship called Discovery with the secret purpose to find what that transmission means. They develop new, new tools for it, including the iconic HAL 9000 computer, to do everything from running the ship to keeping its six hibernating and two waking crew members alive and sane in their months of isolation. Following David Bowman and Frank Poole through their routine on the ship, we, we witness their melancholy, their minimal interactions with each other. We also see them interacting with their computer as if it were a member of the crew, and it exhibits characteristics which seem like personality, even emotion. So when the two find evidence that it might be wrong about something, the two face a dilemma. What happens if Hal endangers the mission? When Hal discovers they're considering disconnecting it, it overreacts, plotting to kill the two. Dave manages to escape and is forced to disconnect all the logic and reasoning centers of the computer in a scene filled with existential dread. Now alone, David Bowman reaches Jupiter's orbit for a third encounter with a monolith. This one hangs in orbit and, as we approach, seems to vanish into the blackness of space. A moment passes and brilliant light appears, racing toward and around the camera. We see a psychedelic sequence of images, racing patterns, flowing paints, and colored landscapes, all of it experienced by a terrified David as he travels through hyperspace. When the sequence ends, David finds himself in a surreal Baroque suite. He appears over and over to see and then become his older self. From the EVA pod to his spacesuit to an old man eating dinner and finally to an ancient one lying in bed apparently dying. This time, however, he sees the monolith again, humanity's fourth time, reaches out for it, and becomes something. Once again, the fanfare plays and we see what appears to be a baby, human and yet not quite human, enclosed in a glowing orb, apparently Bowman, transformed and transcendent, returning to Earth. Wow, thanks a lot. Very thorough, Nathan. Much appreciated. Let's, uh, before we get into the creation, why don't we just give a quick rundown of the cast. Uh, normally John would do this, but I'm going to go through this on his behalf. We have Kier Dula uh, playing Dr. Dave Bowman, Gary Lockwood playing Dr. Frank Poole, William Sylvester as Dr. Haywood R. Floyd, Daniel Richter as the Moon Watcher, Leonard Rosatier as Dr. Andre Smanilov, Margaret Tizak as Elena, we have Robert Beatty as Dr. Ralph Halverson, Sean Sullivan as Dr. Bill Michaels, and Douglas Rain as the HAL 9000 voice. What do you guys think about the cast here? Yeah, so there are a lot of very long scenes where we see these people not necessarily acting with each other, just existing in an environment and expressing something like their extreme isolation that they've been experiencing or how interesting the technology around them is. So it's really interesting, especially, for example, uh, David Bowman, the character who is on the Discovery, as we see him first in this long isolation, and then eventually it's very interesting because he's been in such an emotionless state for such a long time that when his friend, Frank Poole, gets killed by the computer, you might expect some kind of serious reaction, you know, like he would start shouting at the thing, but no, he just stares it down and works on his own how to get back into the ship and how to take it take it over, but you can see these tiny little expressions on his face that really describe how he's pulling out the guts of the computer 
and he's realizing, man, this thing has been his friend for several months. Like, what is he doing? And yet, he has to. Absolutely. Ben, what are you, any thoughts on the acting? To me, I, I, I felt the actors portrayed the characters very well. And I felt that the characters themselves were very vague. Normal, like, because this is everyday life to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought it was very strange that they were... You don't develop emotions for them. You don't necessarily see yourself in them. The characters were very not reflective. They were of, part of the setting almost. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. It was they, they were very much part of the setting. Exactly yeah. like what you're saying. Um, I, but just from a, a, a standpoint, a personal standpoint, the movie is not very reflexive of cultural diversity at all. No. In the future, uh, there's still yeah, just white Yeah, in the future, people. apparently, there's only white males. I mean, the only... There's a lady in it. <clears throat> the yeah. ladies there's are only... There's one. There's one, the Soviet one. Yeah, and she's but, a doctor. Yeah. She is a doctor. But she's but also very other token. Ones, <laughs> yes. The other ones are all in subservient roles. True. Yeah. And the book... I'm, I'm reaching to try and make that. it better. It, yeah. Uh, I, I, see your, I see your point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's there's a... Robots have rights. But, uh, you know, yeah. the, 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 the uh, gender ratio in the boardroom is pretty uh, tilted. I think one of the, the secret astronauts on the uh, it, who are sleeping on the Discovery might also be... A woman, but you know, again, you never really get to see any of those people do anything, so yeah. uh, doesn't really count, does it? Baby steps. Yeah. <laughs> and I was also reading about the person that they auditioned, well, that actually um, got the role of Hal. Mm -hmm. They went through several different kind of approaches, and this the the guy who played Hal, uh, Douglas Rain was actually Canadian and they wanted an accent that no one could associate with so they went with a Canadian accent I'm imagining a more Canadian howl all of a sudden it's like hey Dave how's it going over there are you, uh, are you doing good this morning that's good good Just I really appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> do you want some uh, maple syrup on your pancakes there aren't enough seals around here I'm, I'm sorry about that I don't have any maple syrup. I just offered it. <laughs> that was unkind of me. And I'm very apologetic. I can't do that. I'm sorry. We have Canadian listeners, and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Likewise. Yes. Your, your stereotypes are good, though, in Canada. I mean, you're, you're known for being polite. Like, that's, like, your number one thing. So, yeah. Yeah. The good neighbor, even though we've not been great neighbors recently. I don't know. We're not building a wall up on that side of the yeah. border. Not yet. Not yet, at least. Um, although I'd love the South Park where they build up a giant wall and like uh, to keep Americans out. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and, and Mr. Garrison, who's the Trump figure, is like, he's like, what are you doing in there? He's like, go away. <laughs> we got some really cool stuff in here. <laughs> what is in there? Go away. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit, too, about... Uh, um, Kubrick now, which, well, a lot of it probably about Kubrick. Um, what do you think about his presentation in this movie as a director here in 2001? Nathan, do you want to take this one first? Oh, it's, it's special. I, so Kubrick has this incredible way of making seemingly innocuous scenes have this intense 
feeling of importance about them. And this movie really gets that. They're, if you think about it, the plot doesn't have a lot of things, really. It's less about the specific events, necessarily, than the ideas going on. And this, the way that this movie is presented with these long shots to describe the feeling of what's going on, not just a sequence of events forming a plot together, drives it home more than anything what the idea of this movie, what the story behind it is, in a way that if it was a tighter movie, I don't think it would have been able to express things like that. So between that and the just incredible visuals, the effects that, you know, watching them today, they look you know, so solid because, I mean, they are, they're models, but they're the most beautiful, perfect models. And just, it's, it's amazing to watch. And of course I can't, I can't skip that music, which is just wonderful. Yeah. And so Ben, what, any thoughts on how Kubrick handles 2001? I really like the way he approaches it from the scientific standpoint and the way that he doesn't try to drown out the physical aspects of space travel with a lot of uh, special effect music and swooshing in the air and uh, like engine effects. Oh man, the like breathing you, in the helmets. Well, exactly. But traveling through space, like you have a natural vacuum. You're not going to hear anything. It's just going to be you and the spaceship. I mean, yeah. I've never yeah. been there. I can't speak to it personally. <laughs> But, it's just a um, few miles up the road. Right, exactly. Um, but he comes from a very scientific background. Um, the The way the ship is constructed is very similar to the way they construct the ships in The Expanse, which is based on the way things would really yeah. operate. You mean, and the, I th the, you mean the turning, um, the turning yeah. space station? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the turning space station. Yeah. I've seen that in a lot of movies. Like it's, it, I, I, I was. This is the earliest I've seen it that I'm aware of. Yeah, it, I can't it think may of be. anything specifically earlier that that had yeah. it. Um, it's definitely a Elysium. Trope that, Elysium definitely has yeah. it in it. Um, the the rotating gravity space station. I, I want. It's in that's the Martian. A, that's it's, a, it's in the Martian yeah, as well. Yeah, it's in a lot it? of things. Yeah, I mean, it, it it comes back again and again. This because, is the first one that I'm aware of. That's yeah, yeah. This is the first one that I can think of. And, you know, it makes so much sense. People are thinking about building one now. There's talk of the, the orbiting hotel that's, uh, that's going up. Will it have a Howard Johnson in it? Uh, I don't know, but it'll probably have a video phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An AT&T video phone. I want in, a a little, in a little booth that you go into. I also want a vending machine bar so I can, <laughs> so I can buy my booze from a wall. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't need some. I don't need some bartender to get personal with me. I just want. I just want. I want to. I want to slot in the wall. Hey, to hey man, I'm leaving Earth to get away from everybody. I'm not. I, I don't want more personal interaction now that I'm up here. That's right. I just want a nice looking red chair in a otherwise <laughs> white room. Yes. <laughs> um, Kubrick is amazing at uh, this point in his career about the aesthetic. Uh, he does, yes. I mean, the other one that I'm thinking about is also a science fiction movie, Clark Orange, but he, mm. his depiction of going into the future is really impressive. He is quite a craftsman of the image. Uh, you know, other movies that he's done too, like The Shining, um, I just have these really striking images. You can't, once you see this movie, 
You may not remember every detail about it because it's a very long movie. Um, but yeah. there are these moments that will absolutely stick with you. Um, and it, and it's a very cinematic moment. It's kind of interesting when we get to the superlatives later. Um, to some degree, the acting or the actors, as we mentioned earlier, aren't going to be the uh, meat of it. It, it. Like it's going to be really hard to get it down to best it's scene really, by shot. It goes from one dramatic scene and one shot to another dramatic scene and one shot to another to another, and it's this cascading. And it's the way that he tells the story is is like this cinema graphic sequence mm -hmm. and it's it's quite amazing but it's not something that we're accustomed to almost it's, it's very unique yeah it's very unusual to have something that first of all this movie reads like three different stories going on and they Definitely. happen in sequence and there's connective tissue between the latter two of them between Haywood Floyd going to the moon to investigate the discovery of this monolith and then of course they decide to go to Jupiter as a result of that but we don't have to be told any of the intervening stuff it just skips between them and just assumes hey like obviously after seeing this monolith they're going to go explore it they're they've been inspired to go do this and we don't need to see the politicking or any of the mm. other kind of talking that in a lot of other movies you would probably spend a good amount of time with them describing, oh, we're going to But yet it's suggested, way. though. The interaction with the Russian suggests a lot. It suggests that there's still politics at this time. Yeah. Yeah, like we haven't figured out the Cold War yet. Yeah. Yeah. He's still suggesting that in the future, 2001, even though it was not yeah. that far yeah. off, and now in our past, which is kind of strange. Really, guys, the Russians, they're not bad people. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> tremendous, wonderful, great Wonderful, beautiful people. We could all be speaking Russian this time, <laughs> next year. Who knows? Well, I mean, so my note on that scene is I don't think that it really presents it as such an... as if there's been ongoing antagonism. I just think that it kind of implies... I think it's tension. Well, I think, I think there's tension, but I don't think it's because it's been ongoing tension. I think it's tension because America has this moon on the base and something is happening on it. And these nations, which may, may have, like, let go their old fears about, you know, war and things, all of a sudden there's this chance, oh, man, what if they've found something? What if something else is there? And the presence of these things disrupts the kind of the, the equilibrium, Status the balance quo. that has formed. So I think, actually, this movie, the, you know, the future scenes of this, that it starts off with everybody at peace, and by the end of it, they might not be because man, America's behaving really, really secretively, and what is going on with them? This uh, conversation of fast-forwarding to the future in relations with Russia just takes me to Austin Powers when he comes out. <laughs> and they're like, it's like, he's here with the Russian intelligence. Russian intelligence? Are you mad? And like, Austin, the war's over. Oh, right. Well, finally, those uh, capitalistic bastards will pay for their deeds, eh, comrade? <laughs> Austin. We won. Oh, yeah, yes. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> yay. It's a great movie. Oh, it is. So I think it's really interesting that Kubrick divides this movie into four big chunks. And I, until very recently, have always considered them to be absolutely separate. But upon further looking or looking at it a little bit deeper, they do weave a little bit, 
you you have the dawn of mankind with uh, you're in primitive ape time and then they see this monolith and they evolve yep great cut scene as it goes up into outer space and so this is kind of where we are in 2001 uh we're uh we've We've gone into space and it's very comfortable. Like this shows the advance of where yep. technology is going. It's very believable for 1968 yep. to see like, you know, space is, we now have airports in space. This is a nicer, cleaner, fancier version yep. of an airport. And uh, this is the world that we live in. And then we're on the moon in it also. And so you just stop at a space station, you connect your flight like you would uh, any other airline yeah. hub, and yep. then you go to the moon. You know, normal family vacation yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, your toilet has like 18 different steps of how to use it. <laughs> There's that great image yeah. of him reading the thing. Well, that's also important, too, because it shows that people are still a fish out of water. It's yeah. not It's not like, um, it's not that common to them yet. And so then there's the Jupiter mission where you see these astronauts who like, it's almost boring to them. And so this is the third part of the story where you're now introduced to the next level of evolution which is the computer um a super intelligent artificial intelligence computer so in the same way that the caveman jumped to the mankind we've now jumped to the computer yeah and yeah. then the fourth and final chunk is uh, a psychedelic acid trip through space as you mentioned earlier right, but that right. ultimately results in the next evolution beyond that which is as the book puts it, the Star Child, and if you hear me yeah. refer to it, that's that's what I mean when I say Star Child. Um, that last, or where the movie leaves you, the human alien hybrid in the in the orb. But the monolith is the piece that ties it all together. Exactly. The monolith yeah. arrives for the cavemen. They discover a monolith on the moon. It sends them out into Jupiter because the signal from the monolith is yep. like strong yep. there. There's a monolith in the Jupiter system. Oddly enough, just floating through space. You'd think it would be on one of the Jupiter moons. Um, eh, none of those moons are particularly nice places. I don't know. They say, uh, There's been studies that say like yeah. the, the life could be supported. Well, on, 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 yeah, on, on several. On, uh, yeah. Io, right? They didn't know, yeah, they didn't know this then. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so then the it's just floating through space like a Pop-Tart. Or, or, or like a... Like it's a, in orbit. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just... And then it zooms and takes them. We don't see the monolith in uh, the final chapter, do we? We do. The probe just approaches the monolith, and then it there's, goes into whatever warp space. Right, but we don't see it when, like, he's in that room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We finally see it at the very end. Do we? He, yeah, he's in his deathbed. He's lying down. Ah, uh, you're right. Oh, you're yeah. right. And, and, yet, and yeah. So the yeah. monolith is this alien device that Kubrick has brilliantly. It just made this really simple. Yeah rectangle that was black and uh there were other ideas to have projections on it initially to make it like a blue screen kind of thing that you could have lots of stuff going on but i love again kubrick's aesthetic towards the simple the uh this is in the future everything's refined and so i you know it's like you know just like steve jobs drops the iphone down it's just like a really simple little rectangle this is like like Steve Jobs looks at the monolith and goes like, "Oh man, we got to get to that." <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those <laughs> things perfect. that if you think about it, there is no complicated design that would you know, have any more meaning than just this perfectly simple thing. And so, yeah, they could have made some really crazy psychedelic thing in and of itself, but would it have been as striking as just this mysterious thing that you have no idea what and it is. And you also have to take into account this is coming from an alien intelligence, supposedly. And the design is probably based on a mathematical relation of 
some sort of harmonic or harmonic relation yeah that yeah in that relation there's simplicity and some relative beauty in yeah. it so i mean it's interesting to compare this to a couple of other and i'm gonna bring up the star trek franchise here because the first star trek movie takes a lot of cues from this movie but it's weird alien thing is really different it takes the opposite route where it's this crazy cloud approaching and they fly into the thing and they see this incredible series of very strange vistas and sets and such uh similar in a way to the hyperspace scene in 2001 but it takes the approach that no it's this crazy thing that it's so complicated that you can never understand it and then compare that a couple of movies later in the Star Trek series, Star Trek Four, and the thing that flies up to Earth is, again, a super simple thing. Mm. It's just this cylinder with a little sphere that comes out of it. And so it, it, it asks the question, like, what really are we gaining by making alien life designs so complicated? I'm going to ask you some more deep questions. What do you think uh, the creators of the monolith are like? Like, what do you think their mission with these black monoliths was? Why are they sending these things? Or is it one monolith in your mind and it moves around? Um, like, no. Uh, no I, I feel it's like they're cedars. They send out these cedars all around the galaxy whenever life is, like, Do you think ready. it's a beacon? Like, it's a signal back to them? It could be. I, I think they're gone, though. I think that, really, yeah. I think that they're probably this is their contribution to the galaxy, and they this is their great push. Uh huh. And they kind of like trying to trying to bring up the next races to yeah. uh, to take their place. That's that's definitely an interesting way to look at it, and and I totally agree. I think the question is. Are we implying that these things are doing more than just being there? Because, you know, in the movie, the only evidence of them doing anything come with the later ones, where the one on the moon sends a transmission to Jupiter, and, the, and humanity follows that transmission. But it's not clear that it's done anything to humans specifically. And again, the one at Jupiter, it's not doing anything to them, it's just taking them somewhere, right? Or is that all it's doing? Because the last one, are we... What are we to take it to mean? Is the last one that he finally meets and becomes a star child, that one seems to be interacting with him in some way to make something. So when the apes saw the first one, was it actively changing them? Or was it just seeing something so strange and alien and you know discontinuous with their entire experience that was enough to make the evolution happen? Hmm. Well, I'm... I don't know. I think I think that it is the instrument that's causing it. I mean, maybe the uh, Ridley Scott's entered my brain too hard with the movie Prometheus and uh, the very early scenes of Prometheus show um, creatures that are beyond our comprehension and just on a whole other level of intelligence than ours. And they they've gone off into the worlds uh, around them and they drop in this like black ooze and it alters and creates life basically. On the planet and they call them engineers i don't think this is quite like that but i think that the monolith in some ways 
are like more portable versions where the engineers don't have to go there and set foot on the ground themselves and they do spur on the i think they are advancing because every time somebody touches it they take another big leap we're barely going to the moon and stuff like that and they see one yeah, and the next yeah. thing you know they're on a mission to jupiter we're not even to that chapter like where yeah, we are yeah. now yet and so every time someone comes into contact with it, it brings them to another plane of existence. Yeah. But I got to ask, obviously the engineers were not, um, in, in Prometheus, I don't want to give too much about that. That's too new a movie. I won't go down that track. But anyway, with 2001, what do you think that their goal is? Like, why do they want to advance us or other planets out in other galaxies as much as they do? Like, do they, do they have a need? Do they, is their planet in danger? Do they need another group of people who can work with them to save them? To me, it's one of the biggest questions I have of why do they send the monolith? And I, obviously this movie is not intended to have concrete answers. No, not at all. To me, it's the most haunting facet of this. Like, why'd you send us this nice Amazon Prime box with a little black box in it? And uh, <laughs> I'm now evolved. <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> I now have eight arms. But, uh... Don't pop the bubble wrap for Doctor Who fans who've just seen the recent episode of that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it begs the question. So like, what are all the reasons that an alien race would want to send something to us? And it just leaves you to ponder that. I think there's two sides to it. There's the reality in the fanciful side of it. In reality, unfortunately, I don't think they would. Uh, in the fanciful side, um, they would just do it probably because they were bored. That's true. We do have people teaching uh, apes how to do sign language. Like, there's no... <clears throat> there, it could be for research purposes and yeah. just be like, what happens well, if... Why uh... do you reach out? It's Why do you reach out to other people? Why do you reach out to other... Why do we want to understand what dolphins say to one another? It's... Through that act of I like fish understand <laughs> through that act of understanding it increases our own knowledge of ourselves that's true and that's the basic premise of exploration in general and that's a good point I mean uh, they might just be doing it for their own study and their own benefit to see what happens with this life form as opposed mm. to trying to get something from it and it's a lot it, of work. If you think yeah. about it, if you're the only sentient species out there and you have the ability to create other sentient species, maybe you want to have somebody to play with in the sandbox. That's true. And that's why I was wondering. I wonder if they have a need for us to be smarter. Maybe we're part of a big picture that we're not aware of and they need to get us up to speed because, you know... They'll need help in a thousand years. Maybe. Although there is the reoccurring theme of uh, Kubrick's thing. Uh, people continue to fail in that uh, the very first thing we do once we learn how to use a bone is we go strike somebody over the head with it. Mm -hmm. right, and once right. we go into space, uh, you know, our, our creations kill us. Um, you know, mankind is fundamentally flawed. If I were an alien race and looking at, uh, like, you know, Earth and how we don't get along with each other, like, you know, we constantly fight wars and like even people within our own country can't get along with each other. They're very, very angry. Um, like we're just, that's who we are. We've been this way for centuries, decades, millennia, really. I mean, we're flawed creatures like that. And it, I can't imagine another species I, having all of these traits, like they might be more connected or something like that to each mm -hmm. other and saying like, whew, I want nothing to do with these people. They're just, <laughs> They're very selfish, like, you know, like, they, they just, uh, no, I don't want to touch yeah, them. They're yeah. very dysfunctional. They're ruining their whole planet. <laughs>
we've been watching them for centuries from this location on the moon, and man, let's just uh, point the hyperspace window somewhere else. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, but that's the question. Like, if, for example, a society were just to evolve forever, does there come a point where you reach this realization, like, what are we doing? What is mm. the point of just getting better and better and better? And maybe that's what this is. Like, you, this species is so advanced that it, you know it develops hyperspace windows and can send things to other planets. Maybe monitor monitor them, get information back from those things. Maybe, and maybe they've reached this point where there's just nothing else worth really pursuing or. Maybe it isn't even the whole species. It's just someone experimenting. Um, you know, this is one of those movies that you could really go on and on and on for hours easily about. And that's one of the things that's cool about it. Kubrick did not explain this movie. He did not explain any of his movies ever. He was intentionally abstract. Like one of my favorite artists, uh, you know, Rothko uh, would paint with these swaths of color. And some people might even go into a museum and look at a Rothko and be like, I don't get it. I mean, it's just my kid could have painted that. But he is painting the feeling. He's painting a mental state that he wants you to get into. And so when you look up and see all these dark, dark blues, you know, in a very simple state, I mean, you feel a sense of either calm or something like that. Or maybe you see a lot of really orange yellows. And maybe it means a sunset to me, but maybe it means... Um, Something else, like maybe it thinks of a Thanksgiving meal or something like that to Nathan. And maybe it means something like else to, to Ben. And that's a powerful thing because we just went around the circle and got three completely different ideas. And it's and in a way, this is this is a unique movie. I can't think of any, too many other ones that are like this. Yeah. It's not just science fiction. It's like yeah. science theory almost. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Other things about Kubrick, though. This movie goes 25 minutes without making any speaking lines, and also the last 20, uh, 23 minutes also have no dialogue. So there's only so there's 88 minutes of dialogue-free movie here. So yeah, uh, that your father can fast forward through Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Get to the good stuff. <laughs> oh, good! A monkey bonks that guy over the head yeah. with a bone. <laughs> That's so good. I like that part. All right, let's fast forward to the next part. <laughs> he needs to shoot him up. Yeah. I mean, uh, okay, back to the, the 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 bones scene. I previous section on acting. The actor who's playing the the ape that develops that first tool owns that scene so thoroughly. It's <laughs> it, it's like watching this percussion, this like drummer, like rock out on a drum set and then just throw everything away, and he just raises his arms to the sky like he's just, you know, played the most incredible rock concert or something. It's, he's just it's been great. evolved. He's, he's just evolved, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, look, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are some of your favorite parts of the atmosphere? We talked about the curved space station. It looks sweet. You got this all white interior. Uh, I'd want to go there. I don't know about you guys. I really love the interior of the space shuttles. I guess it's similar to the space stations, of course, but just the curvilinear and rectilinear designs, the lighting, the subtle reduced lighting, the reds and the oranges. A lot of bright, oranges. yeah. A lot of intense yeah. red. Yeah. And there's also a cool, like, the lighting in this is 
kind of uh, cool blue. Like it goes. Kubrick has a very objective, distant style. In the same way we talked about with the characters, he doesn't want to get you real cozy with the characters and no. have a lot of relation. Right, yeah. Same thing in these environments. Yeah, it's almost like this is happening. You're watching it, and yeah. there's uh, there's a sense of disconnect like that. I'll, I'll, there's but, no mixing of colors either. I mean, like the people are all one block color. The walls are one color. The shuttle is one yeah. color. As architects, I don't know about you guys, but I think it's super sharp. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. It's even the oh, wardrobe. Even the wardrobe. So like, yeah. I don't know if you know if the wardrobe or not. Like, but the particularly on the space station, like airport, like yeah. a guy's yeah. got like a really sharp brown on brown with yeah. brown tie suit, <laughs> and he's talking to a guy that with another very sharp gray on gray on gray mm-hmm. suit. Uh, fashion's got a long way to go before it gets to that, so, <laughs> that point. Ladies look very sharp, too. Like, just a little sharp piece of red and otherwise yeah. all black. I mean, um, <laughs> and everybody's then, styling. And everything's <laughs> so just clean and perfect around these things, which is, you know, you can interpret it in different ways. It's extremely clinical, like, yeah. to the point that you feel, especially later on, because... You know, the first bit in the future, it feels like you're on this really posh airplane. Like, it's the best And you notice that he's on the airplane by himself, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Which, on one hand, I I think it's more just because of the plot. He's probably doing it as kind of like a special, oh my gosh, we need to get you to the moon right now. But on the other hand, like, it plays into this theme of, is our technology pushing us apart in this movie? Like, uh, when... when, uh, David and Frank are on the Discovery together. They don't talk to each other hardly no. at all. They talk There's to hardly Hal. any interaction. And I like to think that they were selected by like NASA to go up together or whatever the uh, <laughs> form is, and like they didn't like it. Like there's like a cut scene where it's just like it's like Frank, you're gonna be going with Dave. What? <laughs> I hate Dave. <laughs> Why can't I go with Philip? Well, I guess we'll be working opposite shifts the whole time. Good thing too. <laughs> Seriously. I have to go to Jupiter with Dave? <laughs> well, maybe that's why, like, when Frank gets killed, David's just like, all right, Hal, well, I'm going to break in, but I'm not going to really shout at you. This wasn't really He so really bad. doesn't exhibit a ton of emotion. He's like, dang it, you killed Frank. <laughs> you see what you've done, Hal? <laughs> and Hal's actually, let's not forget, he also murdered the other six. The other six. It's the true. Other, it's the true. The whole, the whole, like, 300 people on that crew. 300? That wasn't 383. I, I thought Hal said 380 people. Aren't what? there? No, there were three other. That's it? Yeah. All right. Well, I got some bad information then. Yeah. Darn it, the internet lied to me. <laughs> um, no, there were three other crew members that were in stasis. Still and, bad. Yeah. Yeah. He turned off the life support. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dave, Dave's just like, I'm going to have to shut you down, Hal. You've got an out of line, partner. I'll I'll even uh, like I'm I'm not mad at you. I'll even let you sing a song as I rip your brain. Right. Oh, the classic Daisy. I mean, I mean that is a really disturbing scene. Like, is taking a computer that we own offline eventually going to start feeling like losing a pet or something? Like, man, this computer, this this this. I don't know, man. You gonna ever get a new laptop? It just flies or a new phone. It's like. I forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I don't know, a new phone, you're like, you have to transfer all your apps and your contacts and your... 
it's not like losing a pet and then getting another pet. Like, no, yeah, it's I mean, not, not yet. You're, you're, you're ready. Not you're yet, ready to be like, we're starting. Like, it's like, oh boy, new iPhone X. Yay. Yeah. Yet. In the <laughs> yeah. future, once Alexis or whatever gets on the phone and it starts crying when you throw it away. That's true. I you're, will miss you, Russell. The, the so, Blade Runner lady would make me sad if she left. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that one up because these are like two different phases in what could be the same technological development. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the girlfriend in Blade Runner is like a future evolution of this where you're pretty sure that she is actually pretty sentient, but you're not really sure. This mm. one, he's obviously not sentient, but he's starting to exhibit certain signs in that yeah. direction. So... It you, just gets really interesting. You guys talked about being influential to other movies. I thought the spacecraft like influences oh, other totally. uh, other tons of other formats, like the modular design. I mean, these things are not aerodynamically shaped, but they're very interesting. Like they got a lot of these Euclidean geometry modules, like the yeah. sphere, the these triangular like pods and stuff like that. The Jupiter yeah. missions, Starcraft looks awesome. Oh, so. that's great. That's that's my favorite location because you get this incredible just like. You're inside the thing, and it's claustrophobic. Well, against my better judgment, Nathan, I tried to get here sooner, but we're actually behind where we normally be. <laughs> you talk about the soundtrack for us real quick. All right, like, all right. So to give a little background here, as a musician, I adore this soundtrack. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting because Kubrick, everything in this movie was not written for this movie. It's stuff that Kubrick found as he was just exploring music in general. And he's not using it in ways that's directly representing like what these pieces originally were. And yet their positioning in here feels like the most perfect application that they've ever had, this music. So you get... And it's an incredible cross-section of people too. So you get people like Richard Strauss who does or, or was sort of late 1800s early 1900s composer doing all these incredibly big orchestral works so it's not a freshly made score it's not a freshly made score some of it was pretty freshly made though yeah um so for example the movie you know everyone knows the boom 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 ba-da opening oh, yeah. but that's not the opening of the movie the movie before that has like three minutes of a black card and just weird stuff. Oh, yeah, very off-putting yeah. sounds. Yeah, the off-putting sounds is a piece called Atmospheres by an avant-garde composer, composer named Georges Leggetti. And this guy, like, his music actually is the majority of the music in the film. He's not credited. He's He was never contacted about its use. Um, and yet it just fits like a glove. Um, Kubrick is taking these pieces and cutting them up and putting them together in ways that they're different from the original from the original versions and yet in the context of this film it's just incredible to hear them that way uh similar music like the blue danube waltz which plays during some of the uh outer space scenes close to the beginning when you've got the docking sequence and it's this waltz that it just fits perfectly that spinning space station and you've got the the shuttle that comes up to it and it has to dock by spinning itself perfectly that's like dancing in space and uh it's really interesting how these pieces sound like they were written for it and in fact there was a soundtrack written for this movie mgm didn't feel comfortable with kubrick just 
grabbing these things. So they had him hire Alex North uh, to do a, a, score. a score for the movie. And he did a whole thing. It was recorded. There are You can find recordings. And uh, without North ever finding out until he watched the premiere, Kubrick was like, hey, I've been temp tracking and cutting these scenes to the stuff that I found and nothing nothing outdoes it and so it's it's really interesting so on one hand it's like well come on get some new blood in here like create new music but on the other hand man I love hearing these these pieces that I love many of them that I just love to play some of them by composers that I just adore and it's it's just really neat I thought the uh one of the ones that I thought just stuck out to me was how uh, lonely and hollow uh, the music is uh, when Poole's working out. Yeah. And the, and the, the, uh, when we first see the Jupiter mission. Aram Kachaturian, a Soviet composer, actually. Yeah. Um, the, the Carpet Weavers is that piece. It shows a lot of contrast because you have this monumental moment on the prehistoric monolith and then you've yeah. got like this very sad moment. I'll be honest with you, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the light visuals, the end of the movie doesn't stick with me as much as some of like the moon landing scene and like when you first like the bone is thrown up in the air and it switches over to another scene a lot of these music moments stick out to me why why is it the last act music doesn't stick out to me as much is that just me well so through the hyperspace scene sure beginning with that you mean sure so i mean again so a lot of the music is Is it that way for you ben i i would agree i think that it's really complicated it um is visually complicated and musically it was complicated and I think it over it complicates yeah Central it overwhelms yeah. the the mind and the we didn't have enough senses. drugs for this scene is what you're saying yeah so I think we should have been high maybe watching it the mm. other part of this though is that bonus episode two thousand one done again acid <laughs> so the other thing about this though is the music during that scene is. One of these, one a piece by Giorgio Ligeti. It, it's actually the piece that was played at the opening a second time, and you hear a lot more of it this time. But this piece is not trying to be melodic. It's trying actively not to be harmonic. It was experimenting mm. with can like how much can you strip out of the conventions of music and still have a piece. So it, so it is, wasn't going for monumental. It like wasn't, this is a big deal. It this... wasn't going for it at all. It was entirely about deconstruction. Can impact. I get the timbre? to the, 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 the sound, the feel of the music to in itself be a piece. Back to Rothko. And I think, <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's, inc- you know, it results in something that for during that scene, it's like, oh man, this is exactly what needs to happen here. But it's not going to be particularly memorable because there's nothing for your brain to latch onto. Um, and then after that, you have another bunch of minutes of silence as uh, David walks around the, the place. And then you get Alzusbrock at Zarathustra. You see the star child for about, you know, five seconds. And then it's over. And this so, movie is also really smart about its silence as well. Yeah. yeah. Like, again, you oh, mentioned yeah. space. You hear the breathing. Very prominent breathing. Um, Several times. Yeah. And then also the silence that's associated with Hal... And just the stare, just that red dot that stares, and his kind of like when he's calling out yeah. to to Dave the to stop. When, and 
Yeah. The scene no. when Frank dies, he just flies out into space and there's no sound at all. Well, that's what it'd be like, yeah. Yeah. But it's haunting. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. it's incredible. As you have to cast his body off to like, because he has to like, you know, save oh, himself. Too, so, yeah. Yeah. You didn't mention the musical performance by HAL 9000. Oh, yeah. Of Daisy. course. The, the, the best piece of all. Um, so that one's interesting, too, because um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, I mean, the piece itself is not terribly interesting, but it is... The use of that particular thing is interesting because IBM then um, once went to demonstrate that their computers could synthesize voice, and that's what they they, they first used it on to, to do that particular piece. Um, to you know, like the future is actually coming, guys. <laughs> we can make a computer make a cheesy song. <laughs> I've always hated. Um... The song Daisy Daisy because Daisy's kind of a jerk. If you actually listen to the whole song, she uh, then explains to Michael, who's uh, singing in the first verse, that she's not going to be getting with any guy who's on a seat or uh, with a bicycle built for two. Uh, she's gonna need a carriage. Oh. Yeah. So I. She's never, high class. Yeah, she's a little conceited. I don't. She yeah. thinks she thinks a lot of herself. So it's yeah. it's it's the 1800s version of No Scrubs by TLC. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. Yeah, well, Daisy Daisy was apparently that before that. That inspiration. Apparently. Um, so, I've got to ask you guys, Ben, why don't you take this one first? How did this movie affect you? Um, when I was eight years old, it, it made me mad because my dad fast forwarded. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I really wanted, when I was, when I was younger, I really wanted to shoot him up like Star Wars-y... Ha! Gotcha movie. That this is totally not. <laughs> this is not Logan's Run. No, this is not Logan's Run. Um, this is uh, not your, uh, you know, high action type of movie. This it's a is, thinking movie. <clears throat> it's a thinking movie, yep. and I wouldn't think that um, younger. Uh, it would take a mature mind to. To, not a sophisticated person necessarily, but um, a person, an older person, I think would enjoy this movie. Not an older person. <laughs> <laughs> not th- not to say that we're older people. An older person in a, uh, a deliberately and accurately done French uh, architecture room who gets old really fast. <laughs> that's the kind of person that would really like right. this movie. I mean, man, that scene is terrifying. The guy, is, he, he looks into the other room and he's like, what am I going to be this time? The guy, goes ah! from, the guy goes from like 60 to like 80 to like 100. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. And like, he's caught in a time warp. Yeah, <laughs> it, it happens to us. Anybody who watches Star Trek understands this. This it's this, inconvenient, but it happens. It happens, <laughs> and okay. usually you can get out of it if you walk backwards. And, you didn't go backwards. Yeah, you get you, you get the yeah. serum from the ship's doctor. Yeah, like, something like out. that. He just dropped a glass. He didn't go backwards. Yeah. <laughs> um, Nathan, how did this movie affect you? So, for me, the thing about this movie is that a lot of this. A lot of this music is just absolutely incredible, but it's stuff that I wouldn't have necessarily encountered before. And even if I had, after seeing this film, it's totally transformed the way I look at it. So, like, the music of Johann Strauss, as a French horn player, this stuff saddens me a little bit often because my part happens to be uh, boom, 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 all the time. But 
with this movie in mind, all of a sudden I can tolerate this stuff a lot more because now this music is actually about spaceships docking. And, mm-hmm. you know, complicated stuff like... In the, the Venn diagram of Nathan, it is orchestra music and science fiction coming together. <laughs> this is not an inaccurate picture at all. And uh, this may be part of the reason why this movie is just so And a cool wonderful. modern aesthetic. I mean, <laughs> all well, of it's coming together. <laughs> Uh, it's it's just so it's it transforms the way I look at this music and it's I'm so happy that it, that it does that. I love that this movie makes you question things. It reminds me of being <laughs> at like summer camp, uh, looking like sleeping under the stars, looking up where you can really see the stars, and you're just so humbled about what's beyond Earth, what's out there is so far beyond our comprehension, and it's one of those things that it it changes. Uh, Admittedly, maybe I'm kind of looking to reconfirm my own beliefs or whatever, but it's just one of those things that you kind of sit there and say, like, wow, look at this amazing thing that God designed. And, uh, you know, this is so amazing that we are here on this earth. We have oxygen, water. It's it's so incredibly fragile what's here. And all the stuff's out there on earth. And it's like we're special. And like this, this, this in uh, what we have here is really special and we need to take care of it. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's a fluke. It doesn't seem like it's an accident, and odds are the the vastness of space is there might be a few other special places out there too, um, but it's just so far beyond our understanding. And so I so I so often get caught up by only what I can influence. I try and keep my head on here on Earth or whatever most of the time. But uh, sometimes when I would go camping and stuff like that, and you would actually just see how pretty the stars can be, I would get that feeling. And, that's a hard feeling for a movie to get. Oh, yeah. But uh, this movie probably is the closest thing to looking at yeah. an intense sky in rural, like West Virginia. That's a, yeah. It's a really neat way to look at it. Um, so let's do some superlatives, even though some of these might be a little uh, different than usual. Um, so, <laughs> Ben, do you want to take this one first and go with sure. your MVP? I mean, I think hands down it has to be Hal. Okay. I mean, I'm gonna have to go with you on that one. Like, if 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 we're picking something in this movie, imagine it without that <laughs> secondary plot element, and in that nothing happens other than people just going after these monoliths. He does kind of steal the show. It's there. There's a reason he's so he's so famous. He's the the interesting thing that talks not just about aliens but about humanity too. Um, that it's not just that we're being driven somewhere or led somewhere. It's that we're also taking ourselves somewhere and that there are paths for us to explore, (laughs) which might be dangerous, but could be very interesting. Well, my MVP is the guy who gets hit with the bone. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm kidding. It's it's not the guy in the monkey suit. Uh, It's Stanley Kubrick. Um, It's it's a... this took four years for him to make. Uh, he's a talent. He's 40 years old by the time he makes this masterpiece. When you really consider that, I mean, the guy starts at age 28, uh, and he's doing full-fledged Hollywood movies and having a huge amount of success, and he builds up so he gets an earlier start than most in the industry, and it shows here. I yeah. mean, he comes off the success of Dr. Strangelove, and he has a lot of credibility. It was critically praised. It made a ton of money. That is a very hard thing to do. And what did he do with this long leash? Well, he and Arthur C. Clarke worked together because the book's written in, yep. in parallel yep. with the movie, something we probably should have mentioned earlier. You just so much to cover here. Um, but um, <laughs> but uh, 
I think Kubrick did an amazing job with this project. And a lot of people don't know what to do with it. But when you really slow down and, and uh, pick it apart and start to go down the path that he wants you to, as Ben mentioned, it's a very challenging movie. It wants you to think about it. Yeah. And uh, if my, my first time watching it, I was insecure. Uh, yeah, about and, it. Like, yeah. I was like, I don't, I think I have some ideas, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, if, if you think you've got all the answers after the first viewing of this movie, especially oh, like yeah. right after you've seen it, do some more thinking because it opens up huge avenues of questions and they're really great to explore those questions and we haven't mentioned the follow-up sequel to this movie which is 2010 true which does address a lot of the gaps shall we say that this movie uh generates and that movie's far more concrete as well yes and it's much more of a well there's it's not a there's no shoot 'em up but it's my dad would sit through that movie. But Roy Schneider is in it from Jaws. Yeah, I think yeah. we're gonna need a bigger spaceship. <laughs> um, best supporting actor, Ben. <sighs> best supporting actor, I would say. Uh, I'm just pulling up my list. As here. you mentioned, there's not a warm fuzzy cast of people here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And the cast is kind of limited. I mean, I would give it to David David uh, Bowman. Yeah, okay, that's and that's fair. Who I played? mean, he's the main actor. Yeah, yeah. But again, in a way, all these actors are just supporting events going on around them. And that's not that's Kira Dula. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Because uh, the interesting thing is, none of them really have agency. We're we're never we're never given you know what the decisions going around them are. So in a way, he, yeah, he even though he's I the consider main thing. Yeah, I consider him to be totally the main supporting. thing. Supporting actor. Uh, Nathan, did you pick a supporting actor? Well, I, so now that I'm thinking about it, because my... Uh, I I gotta say, like, there isn't a real sense... No, no, so no. No, not really. Okay, that's fine. That's allowed. However, I will say, you could argue that David Bowman is the supporting actor to Hal. Because well, that, Hal is yeah. the only one making decisions in these scenes. Really? David is just reacting to things. He has to do everything that he does. Through your rewards, you get to give him out so, to who you uh, want. So that's so fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that it's David. I'm going to go with William Sylvester, who plays Dr. Haywood Floyd. Uh, he is t- technically the main guy in his part of the movie, but uh, you know, I think uh, Dave Bowman, uh, uh, the, sorry, the career doula, is the main actor of this thing. Yeah. Build first. Yeah. So I, uh, William Sylvester uh, seemed competent. Uh, Hidden Gem. Who did yeah. you appreciate that you didn't think you would or that might be overlooked? Well, so for me, I'm going to go back to my music side. And again, it's the Blue Danube Waltz. Which, oh, creative, yeah. Man, in this particular instance, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ben, hidden gem. My hidden gem would be the uh, space food that they serve. In liquid form. Yeah, that you have to suck through the... The little straws. The little straws. Yeah, get some liquid green beans. Yeah. yeah. As it, it was weird that they were all set out like so perfectly. Like yeah. you couldn't condense them more. And sandwiches yeah. that are perfectly square and don't yeah. have crust. Yeah. And they're getting better at it all the time. The time. They are. <laughs> um, here's, here's to the food of the future. These sandwiches are almost like real sandwiches. <laughs> I, always, I always laugh at... 
whenever I'm at like a Smithsonian Museum or something and the gift shop is selling astronaut no, ice cream. Uh, astronaut it's like, ice cream. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be the coolest thing ever. And you taste it. And you taste <laughs> like crap. <laughs> Truly, we are advancing as a race. Uh, my hidden gem also goes to Douglas Rain, who did the Hal 9000 voice. Uh, you don't see him, but... Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Although now, now that I know he's Canadian, I, I do want him to be uh, <laughs> a full-blown Canadian all the way. <laughs> Dave, did you see the game last night? There were some great goals. <laughs> no, I didn't see the game last night. I've been stuck on this thing, and I can't talk directly to anybody else for, like, months. <laughs> <laughs> right. This big you always beat me ball. at chess. <laughs> Don't be mad, but the, the winner of the Stanley Cup from two years ago <laughs> was the Chicago Blackhawks. <laughs> I know this is going to upset you, but I just got that information. Latest <laughs> <laughs> <Please> update. <laughs> uh, so if you could recast anybody or had to recast anybody, who would it be? Who would you put in their place? Yeah. Ben, if you, if you could put anybody else in this, um, who would you put in hmm. there? I would, uh, I would cast some brothers and sisters in the, in the cast. I would throw some Asian brothers and sisters in there. And, uh, Sulu? Oh, Sulu. Can't go wrong with him. And you get the gay with Sulu. Too, yeah. 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 So you get your two for one. I don't know where I Did would put him. Did people know that back then, or was it no? He was he was private? closeted. Yeah, yeah. but um, no, I would mix up the cast. I would be a little more diverse. Specific cast members. I would to me. They're all supporting, like you said, Nathan. They're all supporting Hal. So my change would be the Hal character, and I know that's sacrilege, but I would change the Hal character, and I would do something. <laughs> Can we have Morgan Freeman as hell? It would sound good. <laughs> that would be. I would. I would do I'm something. Sorry. Do yeah. something with Hal. I would. I just, would change Hal. Just like they they changed the robot in uh, uh, Lost in Space in this most yeah, recent yeah. episode. Actually, so you know, here's a question because I haven't seen 2010. Do they continue any of the sort of Hal? storyline or any oh yeah they find that how's still floating around out there waiting for him turned off the small cast goes to show you that uh, i actually picked this guy as my best supporting actor with uh uh uh, playing uh william sylvester playing hayward floyd but i'll be honest with you uh, i i thought who could be even smoother and more awesome for the time Uh, you know it's 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 kubrick i bet he could have gotten sean connery oh man that'd be interesting uh, for, so, know, so for uh, the guy who played uh, Haywood Floyd, he's the doctor who goes to the space station to oh, the board meeting and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he would have, yeah, he would have been great for that part. Would look sharp in a suit yeah. and just uh, back in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you for uh, preserving our secrecy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very big embarrassment. <laughs> um, so, uh, best shot, best cinematic moment here, uh, Ben. You want to take this one first? Yeah, I think um, the iconic uh, space station just rotating in space with the little space shuttle about to dock into it. Love it. Yeah. Nathan. The uh, scene of, I think it's David in this particular instance, running the 
you know, the diameter of this. Oh, yeah. What we of, talked of, about of, earlier. Yeah, in, in, in that incredible rotating set that was built for this purpose. It's and, a good shot. And, and it looks like the camera is, is yeah. stationary and the, and the station's moving around yeah. you. It emphasizes but it. But it emphasizes so much, like, you've just seen this shot in space for, like, five minutes. Yeah. And it's just emptiness forever. And then you're in this confined space that isn't that small but man he's running in a circle and this big hamster well, they actually built it's terrifying they actually built a large section of this uh, discovery spacecraft and uh, it was designed to rotate the the, the actual yeah. set was designed to rotate for the shots and the sequences so there's a reason it looks so good there was a lot yeah. of care put yeah. into that and uh i mean even to the to the extent because they did the same kind of thing for the stewardesses that you know they're 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 walking around I hate um, their hats, by the way. Uh, I mean, yeah. That's the one part of the wardrobe I don't. We like. don't need to forever look like Ping we just hats. came out of the. Sh- <laughs> I, I don't need that. No thanks to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, my best shot's going to be the sunrise over the black monolith. That the camera has a very low, uh, you know, perspective, and uh, you see the the dark silhouette of the monolith, which yeah. is black anyway, which makes it even more striking, and you see the sun creeping up. Yeah. Uh, over it love it because yeah. it's like the dawn in, of mankind in, in, and and then again on the moon it's this i love the the dig setting where they, they you know they they go down to see the monolith and huh? it's and it, you know he really captures how on the moon like because there's no atmosphere to start reflecting the sun around it's this like instantaneous bang the sun is now over the monolith and mm. it just captures it so perfectly I think this one could be a sweep, but uh, best scene. Well, I don't know love scenes or anything like that, right? Yeah, like, this means not just, like, the best shot. Yeah. yeah, yeah this yeah. is your yeah. uh, full for uh, me, plot point, everything. For me, it's the whole Hal-killing Frank yeah. scene. Me too. Because it's just so foreboding. Wait. And yet... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I went with Dave killing Hal. Oh, right yeah. Around. Sorry, no, uh, go ahead. That that scene, that scene that, that's another just incredible scene. Um, yeah. But, but the shock of just like in total silence this thing is sneaking up on 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 the un, unknowing spacewalker guy okay mm. and and the, the beautiful rendition of the the eva pod and how menacing the black kind of window it has is it's great well mine's the one right after yours yeah any worry disconnects how yeah. i like the scene where he goes out of the pod and like gets oh. into the airlock and then follows the disconnect yeah. how i kind of call that one scene yeah yeah i like the scene where they're inter- being interviewed uh over radio or whatever communication system they have mm-hmm. and how's talking about all his how he interacts with the crew and you like the happy moments yeah yeah he has some good moments yeah, yeah. I mean, Hal's not a bad guy. As you will find in 2010, he's not... He's, <laughs> he's not just a, a murderer. <laughs> he was lied to. Because That's, we all know... Again, do we all insecure. know? Do we all know why Hal did what he did? Uh, well, he... I, I think that he found that the job was the mission and these people are too inefficient for the mission. This mission's no. too important. I can't let them jeopardize this. No. Really? It was. It was because... He was so afraid of getting killed by the other two because he. That's why he killed. That's why he's going to. That's why he went psycho. But do you know why? Initially, why he malfunctioned? I was going to say the malfunction was a setup. He wanted him to go out there. That was premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Nothing was wrong with it. He didn't make a mistake. Well, he set them up. I think the original malfunction was not. 
And then after that, Hal's trying to cover for himself. Mm. Because remember, the discussion they have in the pod that Hal over or reads the, their lips talking about disconnecting him is in response to him making the incorrect diagnosis. Another moment so, of being open-ended, or I, think, I mean, uh, open to interpretation. I took it to be premeditated murder. The, oh, it was after that point to me. The original reason that he malfunctioned was because he was given information about the true the true nature of their mission and he was told not to reveal that to the crew Hmm. and it caused a conflict in his personality subroutines that's yeah yeah someone might have tried to program the three laws into him yes basically he had to lie conflict with it yeah basically he had to lie and he, he didn't know how to lie it's interesting we gotta change one thing in this movie nathan what one thing would you change uh I think that we don't, and I don't think we need to do the lunar docking scene quite as long. And actually, you know, now that I'm saying this, and after our conversation earlier, you mentioned that the end doesn't leave you with anything. I suspect that in the original screenings of this, that were supposed to be much longer, that the critics were saying it's too long and they cut it down, that there might have been enough time that that could have breathed a little bit and, and kind of stuck in. I think that we could have spent more time with seeing the star child move about things and experienced a little bit more of that so that it might have landed better. Mm. Ben, if you're Stanley Kubrick, you know, besides I would have trim your beard because <laughs> it's it's long and grisly and yeah. uh, unkempt. But what would you do to change this movie? I would have uh, made more of an effort to come up with the cause of Hal's malfunction, coming back to the original cause of him having that bit of information and being okay. a conflict, I think that was kind of a, a cop-out of making him go crazy and kill. Mine's going to be similar to Nathan's, in particular spacecraft drifting. Um, it's really slow. There's some moments that I think could have moved a little faster. Yeah. And maybe that would have kept you from getting your movie fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, the apes did it because my dad could just couldn't figure out what we were watching. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and that just... That part moves pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, but it's also like, it's so out of left field. If you don't actually know that it starts that way, you 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 know you hear about If you're movie. expecting to watch a science fiction movie yeah, exactly. and you turn on and you see a bunch of apes <laughs> for like 20 minutes, <laughs> no, my dad was not having that. So is he going to fast forward through Planet of the Apes? I don't think so because he's a reasonable person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was gonna, if, I was gonna if, be if it says well, actually, so it. so here's the thing: this the, the the ape scene in this, you know what it's going for, and you understand that it's evolution coming. But it's doing the exact same thing that the Star Wars holiday special does, in which you just have like half an hour of Wookies talk, talking to one another, <laughs> and here it's the chimps, and they're doing the same thing, and it's like what. <laughs> that was great sound effects, Nate. <laughs> I'm gonna sample that and use those for other reasons, <laughs> other reasons in the future. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I could uh, I could help you out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that was also maybe a good Porg impression at the same yeah, time. So uh, true. So so you've got uses out of that. Uh, best quote of the movie. Uh, ben, you want to go with this one? 
Does it have to be? Wait, I thought we discussed this. This is the best quote of the movie. No, it has to be. Dave, I can't. I'm sorry, Dave, but I can't do that. You know, you made this joke earlier, but I think the Daisy song is... Uh, really? Because it's so disturbing. Like, man, okay. you're, you're like witnessing that this computer had like a childhood, basically. Yeah. And he's killing this thing. Okay, well, I'm gonna go with what Ben went with as well. Uh, you know, I'll give a little line there. It's like he's like, "Hello, Hal. Do you read me, Hal?" Affirmative, Dave. I read you. And he's like, "Open the pod bay doors, Hal." I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's amazing. It, 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 things are not going well for Dave. Yeah. Dave's now officially having a bad day. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he didn't really care about Frank so much because they didn't get along with each other. We discussed this earlier. But now, now this isn't a good Tuesday. You, you, right? can watch you should have a camera in the uh, the pod right when Hal says that, and you can see Dave just going sort of a. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of funny because he that whole scene he's like, Hal, Hal, Hal. Yeah, right. And, and, and then you can see that he's all. he's like getting annoyed, but he's not like taking it out on anything. And then finally, Hal does that, and he's like, okay. Now we have problems. It's. It's on. It's personal. <laughs> I really, I really like the. Uh, I really feel like I'm entitled to an answer to that. Question. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> oh gosh. I'm gonna show yeah. you entitled in a second here, buddy. It's not a funny movie, but if anything made me laugh, it, it was that. <laughs> Let's get into the rating of the movie. We're gonna use a five star scale and let us know whether you think this movie holds up. Nathan, on a five star scale. So I'm gonna say, can I say four and a half? Am I allowed to do that kind of thing? Oh, totally. That's how a five-star scale works. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if you're an integer person, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, man, this is an important movie to watch. I think there are things that could be changed about it. You know, you know, figuring out where to cut some pieces out a little bit. Little editing really wouldn't kill it. Add a little bit, maybe, to let the end breathe a little bit. Okay. Uh, definitely five stars. It has its flaws, but I think it's a, a an epic piece. Definitely. It's really important. Yeah, it's a very important piece for the ages. And I think it's transitioned beautifully. The special effects are still... They still look good. They're yeah, they still look good. see today. And the electronic, especially the electronics for the computer screens and stuff that they show, rival a lot of the science fiction that I see today. Yeah. <laughs> that's all yep. I'm going to say. No, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah. I mean... I'm I'm gonna follow suit with Nathan and go 4.5. The the pace does pull me down a little bit, and sometimes it hurts my brain. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm I'm mad that there are no answers. Like I like to come up with my own answers, but then when I can't <laughs> later go back and confirm what those answers are, sometimes that's a little bit hard for me. But I've enjoyed today talking to the three of or sorry the, the ah, there's. <laughs> <laughs> ghost in the room. Uh, I've enjoyed talking with the two of you guys here and seeing what your take on the movie is, and that's pretty cool. So I'm gonna go with 4.5, and absolutely, it holds up. Yeah. Very abstract. This isn't gonna be for everybody. It's not a sci-fi action movie, no. but if if you want a movie that's a cerebral, uh, sit-down movie that makes you question where we are in this galaxy, and and where, more importantly, where we can go, I believe. Yeah, endless possibilities. Yeah. I think I think Kubrick even said that at one point. Don't quote me. Maybe Clark said that. But this is about the infinite possibilities. Now it's time to get into the movie selection for next time. The theme here is movies that take place in Africa. Option one, The Power of One from 1992. An English boy living in Africa during World War II 
uh, through his boxing prowess, becomes a symbol of hope in a time of war. Option two, Congo. When an expedition of African Congo ends in disaster, the new team is assembled to find out what went wrong, based on a Michael Crichton book from 1995. Uh, option three, Tears of the Sun, uh, from 2003. A special ops uh, commander leads his team into the Nigerian jungle in order to rescue a doctor who will only join them if they agree to save 70 refugees, too. All good choices. So let's go with option number one, Russell. The power of one. There can be only one. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Russell. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, and to all of the listeners out there, please take a few moments in, of your time. It only takes about 60 seconds to go on and write an iTunes review. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Share it with your movie-loving friends. Give us a like on Facebook. If you want to reach out to us, email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and please watch more movies. Ben. This is Sparta.
2001 A Space Odyssey depicts four encounters between humanity and a series of mysterious alien monoliths spaced across eons of history. It is a story of how their apparently miraculous appearances inspire us or maybe influence us to take leaps into the unknown. The first encounter happens between pre-humans, apes, and a monolith in the middle of a desert. These apes have been struggling for survival, and yet after they encounter the monolith, one of them develops the first tools out of bones, finding out how to hunt, how to fight other troops of apes for dominance over resources. These tools will eventually develop over the course of long human history until our second piece of the movie picks up years in the future, in that future that takes place perennially 30 years away. But we're getting there. We see a, the discovery of one of these monoliths on a moon base, and in secret, members of the American government start coming to... Mm -hmm. I was going in a good direction for a while. I could have uh, Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. Um, see, just, just say that it's giving signals to the Jupiter system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Humans discover the second monolith buried under the under the moon's surface, and when they approach it, it sends a signal to a location around Jupiter. They take another leap in technology now, developing more advanced computers and a ship that will let them reach that faraway location. On this voyage, they experience some of the dangers of these computers, where as they approach sentience and yet are not quite fully built yet, the yeah yeah humans building on the ship to Jupiter. Do you want to start from Jupiter again and talk, yeah, talk about yeah. the next evolution? Yes. Um, yeah. Being driven by. Sorry. <laughs> um, humans follow the transmission to Jupiter on a ship that they've built specifically for the purpose and includes one of the most iconic characters in movie history, the computer HAL, which, finding that its crew members are perhaps distrustful of it and believing itself to be the best way to finish the mission, lures them into a trap and nearly kills all of them. The escaping crew member disconnects the computer and continues on his way to Jupiter, where he encounters the third monolith. There, it opens a gate, a stargate, into a psychedelic scene where David Bowman travels through hyperspace to a location unknown and far away. There, he sees himself in successive ages, getting older and older until finally, an ancient man lying apparently on his deathbed, he sees the monolith again, reaches out for it, and becomes something. It seems to be, or after something, we see what appears to be a baby, human and yet not quite human, enclosed in a glowing orb, apparently Bowman, transformed and transcendent, returning to Earth.